My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. What do we do about women with penises? Have you ever wondered that question yourself? Are those bright pink pussy hats we see around transphobic? And what inspired one transgender woman to become an author, speaker, and sought-after advocate? Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin. I'm so thrilled to have a fantastic guest in the studio today with me to explore these topics. You'll also hear my and Dr. Megan's thoughts for a listener who asked a question I hear very often. It's actually the most common issue I hear about from cis guys. Before I dive in here with our wonderful interview, a quick reminder to sign up for Girl Boner Extras on my website, augustmclaughlin.com. I send updates about once a month featuring everything from news about my upcoming Girl Boner book, related events, to freebies, and behind-the-scenes fun with guests. I hope you'll also find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can join the Girl Boner community there at facebook.com forward slash mygirlboner. Now, I'm so pleased to welcome Cassie Brighter to the show. Cassie says she is your typical suburban mom, your typical transgender, pansexual, polyamorous, sex-positive suburban mom, that is. She is also the webmistress for sexpositiveworld.com and the leader of Sex Geekdom Los Angeles and runs an annual digital conference for trans women called Empowered Trans Women Summit. She also teaches classes on sexual consent, and I've been following her work online and her articles that are so brilliant for a long time. Thank you so much for joining me, Cassie. Oh, and thank you for having me here. This is really exciting. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing. What did you learn about sex or sexuality as a kid? Um, I think that I learned conflicting messages. It was the 70s, so we began to to experience a little bit of an upswing and a little bit more freedom. But I grew up in a Russian Orthodox environment. And the Russian Orthodox Christians are basically like Catholics, but with more shame and less fun. Oh, wow. (laughs) I'm trying to imagine that. um, Yeah, absolutely. And um, I was just talking yesterday to a gal that went to an all-girls Catholic school. And I can beat that because I went to an all-boys Catholic school as a girl when I was a kid. Oh, my goodness. That must have been a very unique experience. Yeah, so I grew up with all these mixed messages because everything in the culture was, like in the media, was sending messages of the fact that perhaps masturbation is okay. Um, Perhaps intercourse could be pleasure-focused as well as reproduction-focused, but at the same time, so many older messages and uh, messages from my parents and everything said, hide, shame, be quiet, etc. Yeah, and that masturbation is a sin. I know that there are some... Catholic churches and different religious communities that are, are, are sex positive. You have to kind of, I think, search for them a bit more. Mm-hmm. But what I've heard a lot from people who have grown up in Catholicism and, and related kinds of religions is that they basically learned that if you engaged in anything sexually, it was kind of the road to hell. Is that what, were you taught that in school as well because it was that kind of a religious community? Um, yes, I did. Um, something I just for some reason, it popped into my head as I remember being eight years old and walking down the hallway and just absentmindedly scratching my crutch and my grandfather taking me aside and admonishing me sternly, we don't touch ourselves there. And I remember at eight, I thought to myself, yeah, old man, you don't touch yourself there. So you were like a little mini activist in the making. <laughs> I was, yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. So that was early on. And obviously we learn on our own a lot of times. Still still now, I think the sex ed, by and large, there's more information again, but there's so much work to be done. What helped you the most begin to embrace your sexuality besides that natural kind of, I think you had a sense already that those messages weren't quite right. Um. Yeah, I mean, there were, um, I remember your Ronio Zones and Wayne Dwyer and books like that. Is it Dyer or Dwyer? I never know. I think it's Dyer. Dyer. And uh, I read those books and I started getting generally messages of uh, empowerment. Um, porn, in a way, was, was good because I found that 
these people seem, seem to be engaging in this activity pleasurably and they're not being struck down from the heavens. <laughs> so <laughs> if they can survive good. it, that's a good sign. Yeah, but yeah. unfortunately, as I just hit um, 17 years old, I had had my first two or three sexual experiences. I had bought myself my first dildo and Rock Hudson died of AIDS publicly on national TV and I hid from my sexuality and I was celibate for uh, my all my early 20s for seven years. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Which that's is not advisable. Thing. I advise against that. Yeah. Oh, that's intense. And so much less was known about HIV and AIDS then. And then the messages around that were very mixed. What did you re- remember learning about the causes of that, of HIV? Well, generally speaking, I knew I, I, knew I was going to die. I, I had just become aware of the fact that I was, um, that my sexuality largely was receptive. Um, I was identifying as a man back then, so I was identifying as either a gay or bisexual bottom. I was trying to figure out who I was, but generally from all the messages that I had, I was going to die and I was going to go to hell. So it was not really fun times. How did you get out of that then? Because obviously it didn't carry on forever, which is good. Well, um, one thing is I found my own spirituality, and I found a spirituality that was uh, devoid, devoid of shame. So um, that moved me away from Christianity and more towards uh, in, um, yoga and Hindu religions and Buddhism. And um, also, I leaned really heavily into past lives and future lives because I was idealizing. I was hoping that next lifetime I'll be a girl. And I actually carried that with me for the next 20, 30 years. Um, but so... Um, I don't know that I did get out of it until many, many years later um, when I found sex positivity as a movement. So you said that you were hoping at that time you wanted to be a girl perhaps in your next life. When did you realize that your true identity is female? Um, I've dissected that question for myself. And what I, the best way that I can answer is that it becomes cyclical and it's, Realization followed by denial, realization followed by denial. There's something called purging that a lot of trans girls engage in, which is you stock up a really nice wardrobe, you 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 buy the fancy lingerie and whatever, and then you have some kind of repentance moment and you throw it all away and you promise to yourself that you're going to follow the straight and narrow and that you're going to conform. And then the cycle kind of lives out again over the next few months. I did that for years and years, generally speaking, if you had asked me at any point during my 20s or during my 30s, are you a girl? I would have scoffed. And yet, very recently, I found a journal that I wrote when I was 17 years old where I just plain as day wrote, I think that I'm a girl. I don't think I should be born as a boy. And it shocked me that I had that awareness at 17 because I don't remember having that awareness in my 20s or my 30s. So you knew at your core, but all these other messages were telling you, otherwise, basically, saying that this is the way you're supposed to be. Do you feel that because now we're having more conversation, which is why your work is so important, and I think we still need much, much more, but I know some curriculum now in grade schools are teaching a little bit about gender and and different gender identities and things like that. Have you wondered what that experience would be like if you understood more about what it meant to be transgender as a, as a child, like back when you were eight, nine years old. It's it's so important because, and and I'm hoping to reach some parents with this, and hopefully we can touch on trans kids a little bit more in, in uh, later in the interview, but um, it's so important. Chances are your kid is a cisgender, heterosexual kid, statistically. But what if they're not? Um, you're not going to turn them gay. You're not going to turn them trans by broaching the subject. But open a window because, like, for example, now when I lead events and there are 60 people in the room and I have people introduce themselves and announce their pronouns, I'm thinking, sure, I want to know about the non-binary people in the room. Sure, I want to validate the trans people in the room. But who I'm really concerned about is the person who's sitting there who has never actually considered the question, who have a scruffy beard, are six foot two and look like a linebacker, and they might, and this has happened, quietly get up and say she, her. Chills. Yeah. So, um, for example, I remember we vacationed in Brazil when I was a kid. I lived in Argentina 
and uh, we vacationed in Brazil pretty often. It was like a summering spot. And um, they had a more liberal kind of um, uh, press and uh, society. And they had a really sensationalistic post. This is late 70s on, um, on an, uh, what would be the equivalent of, I guess, the National Enquirer here. But uh, they were talking about a girl who had transitioned really, what was considered then really early. She was transitioning at 18. I was 11 years old, and I remember being absolutely mesmerized by that. And it haunted me. It's still, I still see the image of that headline. But there was just not enough representation, not enough affirmation um, to voice anything like that. And then also on the flip side of the coin, you have the negative messaging. I remember I had long hair. I was justifying it with being a hippie. There was kind of a late resurgence of hippie movement in Argentina. We had a military dictatorship, I don't know if you recall. But so there were hippies. And so I grew my hair really long and I was wearing bell bottoms and I was attributing it to that. Um, but there was more to it than that, obviously. And at one point I remember upset-mindedly talking about the fact that my shampoo wasn't making my hair as lustrous as, mm -hmm. as I would have liked. And my father tore into me about being a sissy and about, um, and it wrecked me. And so things like that. So on one side, you need representation, you need positive signaling. On the other side, you have to make sure that the kid is not soaking up transphobic and homophobic uh, things. I remember even just things that I read scrolled in a public restroom um, would be, I would be very aware that there's this subset of people in the world who are pariahs. And whatever you do in life, you can't be one of those. Because if you're one of those, you're fucked. Mm. And I was one of those. Mm. Wow. Wow. You mentioned the importance of speaking to children about transgender issues and that fear that some parents have that it will turn them into transgender people, which there are so many issues around that, right? It's like, well, what are you afraid of? It's not actually, shouldn't be a scary thing, right? Um, but then also that that's not how it works, you know? I have a friend who decided to raise her kids uh, gender neutral without really avoiding things like the pinks and the blues and the, you know, assigning any particular gender. And the child ended up being transgender. And I know some people were saying, Oh, well, you did that. You turned them. Yeah. So how do you respond to that? And w what is, I guess, the benefit? Do you, do you think there is benefit to raising a child without these gender expectations, like regardless of where you fall on the spectrum? I was deeply disheartened when my, my kid came out to me as gay <laughs> because I was kind of sitting on this posture that, okay, look, I'm queer as a $3 bill, but look at my wonderfully straight kids. <laughs> You wanted this little, like, stereotypical <laughs> I did, male accountant yeah. in a suit or something. That's really funny. Um, but I just, of course, he told me that he was gay. And I said, would you like spaghetti or would you like macaroni and cheese? And then we ate. Mm, <laughs> there yeah. was no closet in the house. But so one thought that immediately comes to mind is people have tried conversion therapy and aversion therapy. And the years of this stuff doesn't turn a gay kid into a straight kid or a trans kid into a cis kid. So why would you think that a casual conversation would turn a cis kid into trans? And being trans is not something that makes life better and easier for you. <laughs> you don't suddenly get a Rolls Royce. So, I mean, if by all means at work, then I would love to sit down with somebody and talk to me about being cisgender and talk to me about not being pansexual. And while you're at it, talk to me about not being left-handed and maybe you could, talk, you could talk to me about being taller. And then I would become all those things and my life would be so much easier. <laughs> See, when you give it that perspective, it makes so much sense. And I think because so many people just aren't aware of these issues, there's fear. Because I think a lot of ignorance comes from that fear of, mm -hmm. of the unknown. But you know what I think? I think that there's, um, and this is a half-cooked theory in, my, in the back of my head, but I'm thinking like the people that portray themselves as cisgender, heteronormative in society, the people that Let's suppose a man, he just really, really likes women, and he's never questioned his gender. He's probably breezy. He probably doesn't care. He's probably fine with, with hugging a man. He's probably fine with transgender women and with homosexuals. But then there's this other dude who's always kind of had a thought in the back of his head, and maybe he likes 
freely lingerie, or maybe he has a couple of shame, shameful secrets, or or some aspect that deviate, deviates a little bit from heteronormativity, and he's full of shame about it. And then he projects the the way that he's trying to keep himself in the straight and narrow. He will enforce on everybody else. So a lot of it potentially can come from the fear of your own identity. Exactly, yeah. So uh, something that I really, really um, found delightful one time at, um, uh, and I don't know if I should confess to going to sex parties on... on <laughs> oh, absolutely you can. Yay, sex parties. <laughs> but uh, during one uh, touch positive, let's, let's say touch positive experiential event... <laughs> Very classy. <laughs> Tell me more. Um, there was this man, who, and we were massaging uh, a guy who was lying uh, on a massage table, and there were three of us massaging him, two, two women, myself and another woman, and this other guy, were, we were all massaging him, and he was very comfortably massaging the man's penis. And so later I said, oh, so you're bi? And he said, no, nah, I'm straight. And he noticed my hesitance in taking that in, and he laughed and he said, oh, I've touched enough penis to know I'm straight. It does nothing for me. <laughs> But there was an yeah. absolute comfort and yeah. lack of fear that I really welcome. So quite honestly, I would ask a lot of straight people, how do you know for sure unless you've tried? <laughs> it's interesting that, because gender really is a spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. And and it seems to me that very few people are fully on one side, you know, like completely, I don't know if it would be that exact. It's not like there's this numeric test or anything, mm-hmm. but it does seem that there's a whole lot more variance, which is beautiful, and fluidity. And some people shift around and all of that. And when you see identity expressed without fears, then you, I, I find it a lot more valid. My best friend tells me that she's a failed bisexual. Like, she gave it a good go. She's sadly straight, she says. Uh, okay, so she did try it out. She's like, nah. There's nothing there for her. It's not It's not my thing. That's but it, it, it's not something that she shied away from or ran away from or anything like that. And... Um, as a follow-up note to that, I I always try to look at the other side, and I understand um, homophobia and transphobia beyond the stereotypical. There's a lot of word, uh, a lot of talk about hate, and I don't think that it's fueled necessarily by hate, but the model that had been in place for so many centuries was well, society is going to destroy your kid if the kid is going to walk into the world as as, uh, homosexual or as transgender. So society is going to put a burden on the kid and on you to hold to the binary. So the best that you can do as as a manifestation of love for your kid is to build that binary and hold them to that binary so they're equipped to survive in the world. Um, but we've gone away from that model and society is not going to break you. And one thing that I can tell you from my own experience is that had I never come out as a trans woman, sure, I would have lived. I would have gotten up every morning and I would have breathed in and out and I would have gone through the motions and then I would have died at some point in my 70s, 80s or 90s or whenever. But would I have truly manifested who I am in the world? Would I have truly actually lived? And I really believe not. I believe that I really started living about two years ago. Mm. So there are a lot of rewards there for people to, because as you mentioned, there still is stigma and fear and it's not what it was before. But certainly some of the fear of parents comes from there too, because they see some bullying and they They want to protect the kid. But could you speak to the, so sometimes you think you're protecting someone when in fact your attempts to protect them are actually pretty stifling. Something that I tried to explain to my father, and I haven't spoken to my father in years, but something that I tried to portray to him when he was questioning queer identity. um, And I use these analogies and they're flawed analogies. So excuse me if I offend anybody with this, but I was thinking about being Jewish in, I don't know, 1930s Germany. You have the choice because there's there's some minority statuses that you can hide. Uh, you can't hide that you're black, but you can't hide uh, that you're Jewish. Uh, some of these minority things can be, um, you, you can hide that you're bisexual, um, but you can't hide that you're trans. Or, I don't know, things like that. But anyway, So the point is that you would have the choice, and many Jewish people had to make this really, really hard choice of, am I going to give up 
who I am? Am I going to give up my identity and the way that I want to walk through the world for the sake of merely surviving? Or am I going to proudly stand and announce who I am and who I represent to the world? And fine, so they shoot me, they shoot me. But I'm sure you've heard this before, which is don't be your kid's first bully. If, if, if you are the one embedding the fear and the, the, the shame into your kid because you're afraid that somebody else might do it, you have to stop and realize before anybody else has done it, you are actually doing it. That's a really good point and probably a very difficult realization to wrap your head around, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a lot of feelings, I'm sure, come up around that and guilt and shame and all these different things. And there's so much support there for people. I feel like there's more than there has been in the past, partly because of education and because of people speaking up the way that you do. So if somebody does have a trans child and they want to be supportive, what are some of the first steps? Um, I've run an article recently um, that said, why all these sudden, why suddenly all these trans kids? And one of the things I said there is kids are really good at hide and seek. Kids are really good at picking up signals of what's okay and not okay for, for grownups. And they'll 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 be very, very careful at conforming for the sake of conforming. So one of the things that's hugely important, and I've built on this extensively with my kids, is to build an atmosphere of trust, to build an atmosphere that anything can be said and this has a lot to do with humor. This has a lot to do with uh, trying not to build a very hierarchical ho- household and having back and forth dialogue. And I've had the situation um, where, um, and I'm walking around this because I'm also trying to keep confidences. But at some point, one of my kids confided in me fairly recently some stuff that really took dissecting and was a really good conversation around the topic of identity and sexuality and stuff like that, that they wouldn't have possibly expressed to anybody else because it was difficult and private and whatnot. And um, so you have to open the door. You have to allow for this. And you have to do things, which a lot we're also busy in these, in these days. You have to allow for things like just going through the for a walk in the woods with your kid and sitting and just talking about nothing and everything and allowing for those silences where the kid will suddenly spring something um, deeply personal about a hurt, something that happened at school, and something that I strongly encourage as a trick (laughs) is divulge some of your vulnerabilities to the kid. Model it and, and show that expressing a vulnerability can be done. And also if you let the kid hold a confidence, they will be inclined to hold their confidence back. And then uh, at some point they might say, oh, they might not. Oh, they might not. I mean, you might try your best. And uh, this for parents of trans kids out there, don't beat yourself out too much. You, you, might, you might do everything right and your kid won't come out to you until they're 23. And that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Yeah. I mean, I think we've all hidden things from our parents, right? Like you said, and kids are good at hide and seek. That was a really brilliant article too. I love that you pointed out the fact that it's not this trend, that it is, it's been hidden for a very long time and what a gift it is to be able to present a a freedom, a, a way to live more freely to these kids, which is so important. So I want to speak to you about one of the talking points that we had discussed. You said that you were interested in in addressing what do we do about women with penises, which in and of itself says that that must be something that people think about. Why why is that exact phrase something that that pops up? Is that what people are wondering? Like, what do we do with these women with penises? Oh, they're more than wondering. They're they're fighting and throwing things across the room and yelling and screaming. It's it's a very... um, um, incendiary topic for, for a lot of quarters. And I'm writing an article and I'm, I'm, I think I'm rounding the bend on 3,900 words and still trying to um, get it all in there. So one of the obvious things is the fact that we have learned, we've we've been indoctrinated to identify people by genitalia. And it's so easy and it makes it so simple. Somebody with a pussy goes over there and wears pink. Somebody with a penis goes over here and wears blue and life is so easy. But in real life, 
I was doing some research for this article. There are men born with two penises. There are born born. There are women born with two vaginas. There is a woman without a vagina. Uh, there's such a condition. It's one in three thousand. Um, there are rare conditions. There's intersex conditions. The world is messy and chaotic and diverse. But um, beyond this, something that happens. I have an analogy, and it's it's I'm I'm working on this. But okay, so suppose that you immigrate from I don't know France to Uruguay. There's there's no particular animosity between those two countries. So you'll just be an odd French Uruguayan or whatever. But you'll make do and you'll adjust. But the Japanese people who lived in America during World War II were put in camps because there was animosity. Yeah. So there is a gender war, and we trans people are right in the middle of it. Yes. So when I want to be in a room with a bunch of women, and some of these women hate men, I am questioned, am I a spy? Am I an interloper? I am an intruder? and uh, Or am I a deserter? Am I a traitor? <laughs> There's all these words that come to mind. Um, also, I think that it's jarring. It's awkward. Um, it's a little intimidating Watch seeing a penis in a place where you normally would expect uh, only vaginas can be really startling. For me, it can be really startling. Do you know what I mean? I have two moments which I find Sometimes you look at yourself and you're like, oh, my God, you're so stupid. <laughs> you do that, too? I, <laughs> so one one moment I remember that stays with me because of uh, what kind of a brain fart it was is I, I led these uh, all-girl slumber parties at Sex Positive LA for over a year. And at one point, I looked at the room and I saw that the composition of the room was, you know, all ages, several races. It was a really nicely distributed, diverse group. And there was even two trans women in the room. And I really kind of patted myself in the back for being so liberal and so progressive that I allowed the trans women to sit in, too. And there was like a pause in my mind. I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) That is so... That's such a human moment, though. I think we can all relate to that. It's not about achieving this status of like, now I am doing this all perfectly. You know, that we all carry this this tendency to to judge and to and it brings up the whole idea of intersectionality, which if people aren't familiar, familiar, it's essentially that, you know, all these different factors in our lives, they're inseparable. So if somebody is is black and trans and female. And, you know, those things are not, they intertwine. And so it affects the kinds of privilege we do or do not have. And um, so it sounds like what you're speaking about is also the, you can be in the room fighting for equality and still have. Yeah, and have internalized transphobia and have racism and have bigotry in you. Yeah. It's good to at the very least recognize it, right? Yes, yes. But, um intersectionality, one of the key things about that is the people who oppress tend to oppress more than one group. So um, you'll find that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, so to speak, is one one thought they have. And uh, the solidarity that you can build, I actually find that a lot of um, what's happened to black people in America resonates with what's, what's happening with trans women uh, or trans folk in general right now in terms of exclusion versus inclusion, in terms of discrimination and whatnot. Uh, the other incident I wanted to share with you, and this one I find especially hilarious, is I was in a cabin in the woods with my partner. And um, it was a romantic getaway, so we were getting undressed. I hadn't fully surveyed the room, and I didn't realize that there was a large mirror on one wall. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw what I thought was a man naked in the room and I freaked the fuck out. <laughs> and it was, it was myself. Oh I my saw goodness. a penis and I didn't expect there would be a penis in the room. And I freaked. So wow. I understand why cis women react because I freaking reacted and I wanted to run out of the room because I saw a penis. Wow. So you really empathize, which is probably partly why you have a beautiful way of speaking to people with different views If you go to CassieBrighter.com, you can see you answer questions and you are not, you don't shy away 
from really intense stuff that even reading it sometimes, I'm like, it's my skin's crawling and I start sweating and then I read your response and I exhale. And I'm like, <laughs> that is how you speak. Like you, you have a way of coming with this, um, you come into the conversation with compassion and really trying to understand where that person is coming from and you don't seem to be talking like down at people. How did you develop those skills? And is that challenging for you at all when people come in and and they are expressing like really major transphobia? Um, it's interesting to be asked how I developed it because I, I think I kind of stumbled into it kind of by progression and naturally. One thing that, and I don't know how many other trans girls can speak to this, but I have tremendous empathy for entitled, clueless, unaware, heterosexual men who don't get what a woman feels like. Because I don't know if I was that guy, but I played one on TV. <laughs> um, <laughs> you have the experience of going through the world as with that identity. Exactly, or yeah. And, and, on you. And, yeah. And being absolutely clueless and um, walking the world as a woman now, I... I would choke that guy. <laughs> so that brings a certain humility to a table already because of the fact that you suddenly you have so many uh, rueful moments and so many uh, learnings. So that's one thing. And then um, also I just, um, we're living in a really unique kind of a time, not just because of the fact that we have this oppressive kind of administration, but also because we've become massively polarized and very tribal in our thinking. And I think that that uh, weakens all of us. So it'd be really good to just try to say, Robert, uh, do you know, I'm familiar with Robert Fulgham. I know the name. He's a Unitarian pastor and he writes wonderful. He wrote uh, All I Ever Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Oh, okay, sure, absolutely. And so he says, at my age, I try not to think, how could you possibly see it this way? And instead I ask, Wow, you see it that way? Tell me more. Okay, I'm keeping that. I'm going to like plaster that on my forehead or something. No, I, I really like that. I, mm -hmm. I have one thing I do try to practice is the idea that we can learn from everyone. We can learn from people who have completely different views. And I think with our current administration, it's a really important thing to, to try to do because otherwise we get more of the divisiveness. And instead of just, it's easy to just put up a wall and just say, I don't even want to go there. Yeah, and... Uh, I have these ironic situations. Um, at, at some point recently, when I wrote that Trans Kids article, uh, a woman uh, who found the article became so incensed with my writing that she um, begged her 5,100 followers to come to my page and write nasty reviews and stuff like that. And uh, I looked at her Facebook group, and what I found kind of tragic is that they believe in smashing your, the patriarchy and yay for that and I believe in that and they believe in a healthy um, diet and, and in organic foods and I yay for that and they, they believe in raising your kids fine and I agree with that and they agree in uh, they, they're pro-choice and unpro-choice the, the one detail that we don't come to, to an agreement in is that they would like for me to wither and die <laughs> just that one thing that, that one, one detail, detail. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I recall that well. And I loved how people were rallying around you. Oh, that was so touching. Just beautiful. Everyone, go to Cassie's Facebook page. If if you read a few things, if you've listened to this chat, I'm sure you are a fan of hers. So please leave a, a positive review. It was really beautiful to see really genuine comments from people. And when you look at the page, it's very obvious that there was that bullying because when you look at the one star reviews it's not like they were putting all this thought into it was more of the lashing out and do you have a sense of where that might come from given that in so many other ways it seems like they want to be more inclusive I have a silly confession to make uh, I'm a social media uh, manager as well as a marketing manager so just simply for testing purposes I have about 20 different personas on Facebook that I can tap into at any given time okay that's fascinating <laughs> I want to like. They're not fully fleshed out, okay. but I have these different accounts that I have used for testing marketing purposes in the past. You run a Facebook ad campaign and you want to see it from a different account's point of view. Anyway, it's like so. Spy work. 
it is totally spy work. Anyway, I logged into one of these spies and I joined the Facebook group of this woman and I have a screen capture of her. Um, the one who was doing this? Yes, I have a screen capture of her begging her 5,000 members <gasps> to come and hit me. So uh, it's it's it wasn't couch. It was very, very overt. That must have hurt deeply, I imagine. I mean, I know that you are very strong. You develop a little bit of a thick skin. Yeah, yeah. What helps you get through times like that? Um, Well, yeah, going into empathy, like, well, what's hurting you so badly that you need to do this, right? And in, in her case, she comes from a really flawed way of thinking. Um, and I don't know sometimes what could be done about this, but her viewpoint is that parents are hurting kids by uh, pushing transgender agenda on them. And that is science fiction. That doesn't exist in this planet or any other planet. I've never heard of anyone doing that. Why would a parent uh, take that on as a hobby? That is ludicrous. What does happen in reality is the parent will stumble into the kid wanting to hurt themselves. They'll walk into the room and they'll find the kid holding scissors and trying to cut off their penis. At four or at five, uh, they'll find kids trying to hurt themselves. Um, One instance that I read, the parent found her six-year-old about to jump out the second-story window. That's what they find, and they're terrified by it, and counseling ensues, and a lot of... uh, um, holding ensues and a lot of conversations ensue. What happens next is not gender reassignment surgery. What happens next is not massive amounts of whatever it is that they're thinking happens. What happens after that is a lot of therapy, a lot of talking, just allowing the kid to survive through the world. But usually the a, a trans kid has two and potentially three key milestones in their life that really need to be taken into account. Um, the kid will express, sometimes sometimes not, sometimes they'll express before uh, kindergarten, they'll express to the parents that um, that they're trans. And then the parents will, uh, let's assume the parents do make the provision. And then the kid lives happily in the familial circle, in the circle of relatives, um, in their proper gender. And then they hit a wall because they become six years old and they're going to have to start going to public school and they face a huge crisis because our public schools are not ready or or prepared right now to assimilate that. So by the time they're six, there's this milestone they're very aware of. They're going to have to make a lot of really hard decisions. So that's one point. Um, If that's not carefully negotiated, that kid's first grade, second grade, third third year is gonna be hell. The next thing, obviously, is puberty. And for a girl to start developing facial hair or um, chest hair is is mortifying. To to feel their voice dropping is mortifying. It's basically turning into a monster. For a boy to start developing developing breasts is, is a huge source of shame. So by 13 or 14, the kid needs to needs the parents' support. Like, how can you please stop this disaster from happening? And that's when uh, blockers come into play. But it's still not about transition. It's just about delaying things a little bit. Uh, because right now, I, I believe that in pretty much every state, you have to be 18 to consider um, actual surgeries. Yeah. And surgeries in themselves are a really important topic to talk about. I don't know if we have the bandwidth today, but... Surgeries do not define your gender. They do not even, I mean, they kind of validate your gender, but they wouldn't. They shouldn't have to. Right. And it shouldn't be, which takes us back to the penis in the room, right? Yeah. Just because a gal has a penis doesn't make her any less valid. Because I've heard yes. this argument from lesbians, which is, you know what? I'll accept her in the room after she has the surgery. You're kidding. Wow. Which is pretty crazy. There's such. Have you ever heard the term the cotton ceiling? No. I don't really, I don't really know what the metaphor is trying to say. I think it's about cotton panties. It might be about tampons. I don't fully understand. But it was uh, invented about three years ago. It was coined by um, trans activist called uh, 
drew the bow. And it has to do with the fact that women will welcome trans women into women's spaces up to a point. The most um, egregious example of that would be the fact that lesbians are very happy to interact with trans women sexually, sorry, socially, but not sexually. And that it, it breaks down dramatically at that point. Interesting. Um, but it's a difficult subject to talk about because it could easily be interpreted that we're saying that everybody has to have sex with us. That's not what we're saying at all. Right, right. No, I completely <laughs> see what you're saying. But it's so complicated, largely because of the culture that we're in. And we have such strong beliefs and and attitudes about genitalia and yeah. how hugely defining they are. And, and especially just the fact that a lesbian might not accept a a woman because of the penis, because the penis is so much enmeshed with our idea of masculinity and manhood. We actually have a question from a listener that relates to this and also to the shame that you mentioned that a lot of, of trans kids experience around these kinds of issues. But it's so interesting because I did an episode, I want to say a month or two ago, I interviewed a man who, a cis man, who entered the smallest penis in Brooklyn pageant a couple of times. Yeah. And he has learned to really celebrate his small penis. And so it was a really positive episode around small penis size. And since then, I have been receiving so many emails. I've never been thanked so much by cis men for speaking to this. And most of them are saying, I relate to this. We you know? place way too much focus on on the size and shape and, and uh, of um, we should not judge men's worth by the size of their penises or, or how that's not what makes a human being uh, or, yeah. or even a sexual partner. There's so many things. It's the motion in the ocean. It's not the size of the ship. <laughs> I love that you said that. You'll see why here in a second. That is so perfect. But this question came from Peter. Mm-hmm. Peter wrote this. Hello, I recently discovered your podcast and listened to a few episodes and enjoyed them. The small penis competition one resonated with me as I have a small penis. I'm 28 years old and 300 pounds and have a small penis. I have never had the courage to show a lady because my super low self-esteem, I am still a virgin. I do masturbate and enjoy myself and watch a little porn, but never had the courage to try to have sex because of my small penis. I just always thought it was only me with a small one. But listening to the podcast, I realize I was wrong and I feel a little better about myself. And to hear that people in porn say size isn't such a big deal really helped me. In my head, my ideal woman is a petite body with small boobs. People give me a lot of shit about that. But I'm 300 pounds, so I have in my head that I can't get a small woman with small boobs. So I don't try that at all. And it's why I've been single for years. Any advice on that and any advice on a 20-year-old guy trying to lose his virginity without being humiliated or embarrassed? Thank you from Peter. Peter, thank you so much for this question. I'm really glad that the episode found you at a a good time, it sounds like, and that you found that you did feel less alone because I'm telling you, you are so far from alone, so far. And as Cassie was saying, there's so much more to our sexuality and what we can bring to relationships. And there are actually, you might remember this from the episode, there are people who have a fetish for small penis size. So there are people who are exactly looking to engage sexually with somebody with your physique. Uh, Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming of Great Life, Great Sex had to say. Peter, thank you so much for this question. And I'm so glad that you reached out um, because certainly it's important that you recognize you're not alone. Uh, A number of men uh, are often concerned about having a small penis size. There have even been studies done where, you know, men actually tend to underestimate um, the size of their penis. And so sometimes even just getting that practical information, education can be helpful. Um, That said, uh, you know, one of the things I'd also wonder is whether or not um, you've seen a urologist or a primary care doctor. Um, because of your weight, it may be also true that um, you have something that's sort of referred to as a buried or concealed penis, where um, the penis is sort of uh, hidden beneath the abdomen, the thigh, or the scrotum. Uh, so that's one thing to potentially have assessed and, and considered that weight loss may in and of itself uh, may make a significant difference. 
So, but going back, what I think is most important is that we are all come in all shapes and sizes. That's true of breasts. That's true of penises. That's true of our bodies. Um, and you know, there's a lot of information out there that you know. Yes, there are some women who have preferences, uh, but there are a lot of women who penis size really is not in any way an indicator of their attraction or um, desire to be or to have a, a, with a partner. Um, and I think the most important thing here is, you know, so often in our culture we focus on penis and, and genital stimulation, right, as, as in a sense the sole means of giving and receiving pleasure. And, you know, the expression is, and I've said it before, it's, you know, it's not the size of the boat, it's the motion of the ocean. And so you have your hands, you have your mouth. Um, in my experience, whether it's premature ejaculation, erectile dysfunction, size of penis, any of these areas where perhaps the man isn't feeling the most confident, typically I'm telling you they are the most amazing lovers because they're really good at oral sex and with their hands. Um, and a book I might recommend, uh, would recommend is Ian Kerner's She Comes First. Um, again, focusing on, you know, pleasuring. And there are a lot of great books out there on how to give women pleasure. Um, but I think what I'm also hearing is that there's been an avoidance of putting yourself out there. And listen, we all have preferences. And I hear that you're interested in somebody who, you know, sort of small bodied and small breasted uh, or petite. And what I could say there is, listen, you might, that may be who you're most visually attracted to. Um, and the reality is I don't know and you don't know until you go out there and try whether or not they may equally be attracted to you. But what I can say is so often what I see is people limit themselves because they have the, what they perceive to be a type. Um, and I have found when they actually have the experience of, and really doing this on purpose, going out with, you know, uh, you know, five or 10 different people, just a number of people who you would never potentially go out on a date with and just increase the, the numbers well enough to realize, and I've experienced um, and had clients report back to me that they're often surprised that, you know, because somebody, uh, there's chemistry and there's just this, um, this banter and conversation and shared hobbies and interests that, believe it or not, sometimes even though on paper, uh, for, it could be for religious reasons or it could be for, um, you know, physical reasons that attraction really can happen. And so I would certainly say don't close yourself off to those possibilities because you don't know what you don't know. I always say we really know what we know and we don't know what we haven't tried. So I think really it's about... Um, working on sort of your confidence and knowing who you are as a man uh, is way more to do than the size of your penis and what you have to offer and feeling really good about what you have to offer because that confidence is really what is sexy and is likely to draw a woman toward you. Um, but the other thing I would also add here is that, you know, when and if, because I've sometimes found this when men, um, and again, I know a lot of men, 28 that are virgins and 40, I've worked with men who are 40 that are virgins. Um, but often when you feel like you've had very limited sexual experience, there, it's not uncommon that there might be anxiety. Um, and just, uh, and in your case, it, you may have some body image issues or uh, just sort of feel, you know, maybe not socially skilled. And so um, this isn't the first um, suggestion I would make. I would fir first have you put yourself out there, go online, have a friend help you um, come up with your profile, really spend some time on your own. But when and if you're feeling really discouraged, an option you might want to consider is um, surrogacy. And there's the International Professional Surrogates Association, and their website is surrogatetherapy.org. Um, and what therapy, surrogate therapy is, it's when you're working with, it's a sort of a team, it's a therapist and a surrogate partner. Um, and so in between the sessions with the surrogate, you're working with a therapist who typically is, again, addressing issues um, from anxiety and lack of sexual confidence or lack of experience. And for those who find it um, difficult or impossible to find a partner in real life, that's when the potential role of a surrogate could be an option to really help you get the experience, get the confidence, um, and th how that then might translate to dating in real life. So I've given you a lot, but I think the biggest thing I want you to take away is who you are, what you have to offer has, uh, you know, 
the size of your penis is very a very small part of that equation. And again, as I said, for most women, it really isn't even on their radar. So go out, have fun, develop the the tools, the confidence and skills, um, and just learn all the different ways that you can pleasure your partner. And as always, as I say, have fun and let me know how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. She brought up such wonderful points. I would add also, Peter, that different positions can help a lot too. You could stay the exact same size you are and still have tons of pleasure and give so much pleasure and and share in so much pleasure. Toys can also be awesome. Anything that you would add to that, Cassie? Oh, toys, absolutely. Um, I'm spending a lot of time with my friend Roland Downs at Tristology, and she's showing me all the different toys that are available for women. Um, Tristology is a small uh, I guess, I don't know if she describes it as a sex toy shop, but uh, that's what I would call it. And it's beautiful and it's classy and she has all these different toys. And so sometimes women say, well, I feel bad for the guys because there's all, all these things. But what she says is, no, this empowers the guy to pleasure the girl in so many different ways. For some reason, I think we are we are conditioned to think of sex in this really formulaic kind of a way and that it involves penetration always and that it involves the sequence of events always that doesn't have to be the, have to be the case i was confiding with a close girlfriend of mine recently because she's uh, um she's straight and she was telling me about her experiences with her man and she said how do you and your partner have sex because my partner is non-binary and i'm trans and so i described it and she shook her head and she said, straight sex is so boring. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. We have this whole penis and vagina intercourse mm-hmm. is kind of how some people can define sex at all. And and in fact, there are so many other ways to engage. Absolutely. And one thought that uh, also this, this brought to my mind is I've been a member of um, a movement uh, called Sex Positive World for several years. Uh, I run their website, sexpositiveworld.com, and there's 14 chapters internationally. There's a chapter in L.A., uh, run by Dr. Laurie Bennett Cook, a chapter in San Diego. Laurie's awesome, by... by the way. She's been on. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she's Love wonderful. A uh, close friend of mine, Jen Gonzalez in San Diego, um, another sexologist, runs the San Diego group. Evelyn Decker, and Re- Decker runs the Portland group. And there's groups in uh, Amsterdam and in Singapore and many other places. But so, sure, we have seminars and we have talks, but we actually do have experiential uh, events, some of these really structured, some of them a little bit more unstructured, but there is sometimes nudity and there's touch. And one of the things, and I forget who said this, it might have been even Gabriela. Gabriela Cordova is the founder of this movement. She lives in Portland. I think it might have been her who said, um, or Laurie, that um, it's really helpful to engage in this kind of social kind of sexual activity as you engage in dating, because have you ever gone to the grocery store and you're starving and then you come home and you're like, I bought anchovies. Why did I buy anchovies? <laughs> so yeah. um, instead, if you're not starving, you make sound sound decisions because yeah. you're not in the panic. And so the same thing, if you have sensual touch or even nurturing touch, we do a lot of cuddle events. I've um, been to some. Jean Franzlau. Yeah, Jean awesome. from the Cuddle Sanctuary. Yeah, and her events are completely platonic uh-huh. and teach so much about consent. But it's a really great way to connect with people physically and just to fill some of that, you know, because we all have a need or most of us have a need for some physical touch. So, you know, if somebody like Peter is is wanting that, whether it's in a more sexual way, like you said, you can explore. So tying that into the grocery store example, what would be the benefit then of going to one of these experiential sex events for somebody who is single and kind of feeling like they just don't know where to go? One of the immediate benefits is the fact that you see real bodies. Um, the bodies that you see on front cover of women's magazines, the, the bodies that you see in uh, um, in sex magazines or in porn sites are freaks of nature. These, <laughs> these are outliers. Yeah. Or, yeah, for sure. or both. Um, these are athletes. These are performers. And, uh, oh, my gosh, I would absolutely love to bed one of those. They're gorgeous, but they're not the common human experience. The common human experience is very varied and you find people with uneven breasts. Almost every woman has uneven breasts to some degree. Um, You find uh, small penises, you find large penises, you find 
uh, circumcised, uncircumcised. Cellulite and scars and Exactly, and stretch marks. And you yeah. get you get the real human kind of uh, nakedness, not the aspirational nakedness that we see everywhere else. So that would be an immediate benefit. The other thing is that you engage with vulnerable human beings. Now, I'm not I'm, I'm talking about a really guided environment in sex positive world we curate and facilitate these events. It's not just a swing club. In swing clubs you might find a pretty predatory kind of a vibe or a really kind of utilitarian vibe that might not be suited for somebody like Peter. You want a nurturing environment. But that's what we tend to foster. And it's not just us. There's other sex-positive groups that are kind of along the same vibe. But generally, I'm just talking about finding a supportive network. Yes, that network, I think, is really important. And one thing I've noticed about some of the sex-positive activities, because as a monogamous person, I was a little intimidated going to some of the sex-positive events because I thought that I wasn't going to be, quote, like, considered cool enough. You know what I mean? And actually, (laughs) it was Lori who said to me, that a lot of people come into the sex positive meetings and they'll introduce themselves and they'll say, well, I'm not non-monogamous yet. Like it's something (laughs) that they have to strive for. Uh And she said, it's not, that's not what it is. This is a place for people who are asexual, people who are bisexual, people who are polyamorous, people who are exploring and queer and fluid. And, and I've never, I haven't been to a sex party, but I've been to like Catalyst Con, for example, I've never been to events like that where consent is built into every step. I actually felt more nervous going to thriller writing conferences than I did at any of the sexuality conferences or have so far where I, you know, obviously every once in a while there's, there might be a predator or somebody who's who doesn't go by the rules and we get that throughout life, mm-hmm. right? But we make a very strong effort to build yeah. a safe container. Yeah, like things like I remember the buttons where you could say uh, hugs, handshakes, <laughs> please don't touch me or something, or I don't know. I don't, that's yeah, not what yeah, they said. Exactly. But like just uh, there's so, so much more conversation. There's like specific places. So you can find a community. And, and finding that is so important, I think, too. I want to ask you really quickly about the pussy hats. I know we don't have a lot of time to discuss them, but I have heard a little bit about your views on them. They've been a bit controversial because there's been kind of a an idea that, oh, they're they're pink because and pussies and well, not all women pussy have hats. pussies. Right, exactly. <laughs> I can speak to that. Um, there, there was a backlash against the pussy hat and the premise, and it's a really good slogan, so to speak, a really good sentence that says, not all women have pussies, not all pussies are pink. And I agree with that sentiment, and it's good to talk about intersectionality. Um, this is not a white women movement. This is not a cisgender women movement. This is a women movement. So everybody should feel included. Yay for that, and I'm all for that. However, I think that it it can get a little bit um, silly in the fact that we need to acknowledge the fact that the vulva, the vagina, is a symbol of womanhood. Um, in, in one article that I wrote, I wrote, if you're going to symbolize pizza, you're probably going to draw a pepperoni and cheese pizza. There are more pizzas than that. There's Greek pizza, there's margarita pizza, there's there's anchovy pizza. There's soy soy chicken pizza. There's... Right, but if you're going to draw a pizza, chances are you're going to draw the yellow with the little red, and it, it's representational. Sure. The public restroom has a woman in a dress. Not all of us wear dresses, but it's a symbol. So, and this, the pussy hat is a really, really good, empowering symbol in response to a very misogynistic sentence spoken by a person I really don't like that much. Um, and there's another note that I want to say about, about this, which is I think it's really important for trans women to join the women's movement. I understand that we need to talk about trans issues, and absolutely I talk about trans issues all the time, but we are women, so we need to also sh- also show solidarity for all women's issues, not just for the women's issues that matter to us. So reproductive rights is important and the Me Too movement is important and uh, Time's Up is important. And I don't know, like all these other things like sex trafficking and, and sex worker rights are things that we need to have a solid foundation on. It it bothers me when we get into what I perceive as a little self-serving in the fact that we're just going to we're just going to hold up the sign that matters to us. But what about everybody else? Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And and I really appreciate that perspective, especially 
as a trans woman, to, to hear you say that you did not find them exclusive to you, like they were, because um, I know one thing that does bother me, and but the thing is, is I'm not a trans person. So if it doesn't, and I know that everybody has a unique perspective, but I, I think the idea that when people say things like the pussy makes the woman or a real woman has a vagina or something, you know, those kinds of ideas. Yeah, and occasionally are, I saw yeah. a girl with a T-shirt that says, I have the pussy, I make the rules. And that's yeah. offensive on many different levels to yeah. many different people. But so I drew, I drew a graph that goes from centering to rejecting. And in the middle, you have ignoring. So centering then you have including, and then you have encouraging, and then you have ignoring. So the Women's March includes trans women, and it includes black women, and it includes Native American women, but it doesn't center trans women, and it shouldn't. It should center women as a as a whole. As a, including. A, exactly. Including. Yeah, and actually one thing that came up a lot was people were saying that because the pussy hats were pink, that they were therefore racist. Right. And also people just don't dive in deep enough in the genus of the thing. Yeah. The women who started the, the Women's March are largely uh, people of color. And the pussy hats. One of the women is a woman She's of color. She's a person of color. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and, the, and, so she, and she said folk, that the color was not just about that. But I do see benefit in having many different colors. It was a strident color pink. Sure, because pink sure. is associated with girls and, and with demureness and with shyness and a sea of pink in defiance of misogyny was the intent. It wasn't supposed to represent the skin color. Right, so. right, right. Yeah, exactly. I think sometimes we get so caught up, it becomes a game of telephone where like yeah. there's a headline and everyone freaks out at the headline and then doesn't necessarily go deeper. And yeah, I think and, it's important sometimes that I think do. that some of these voices are misguided. Um, I have two examples. There's a gal, Arcady Brown. She did, she did a, an exhibit called the Volva Art Project in Portland. She's getting backlash because she's being trans-exclusionary. But it's the Volva Art Project. And she did this in Portland and she Wait, had... Wait, why, why would that... So is it? Is she saying that because it's... Because there were no trans women being represented. Which, I mean, she spoke to me about it and she felt really disheartened and I was yeah. basically trying to hold her through it. And she says she's learned a lot and she says that if she were to do this effort again, she would absolutely include a trans woman. But at the time, she was just focusing specifically on body positivity for And the was it called like women's vulvas? It was just called the Vulva Art Project. Okay, okay. But in other words, there was no malice. There was learning right. out of it. Right. But I think we're a little quick to call out, to judge, to, right. to signal virtue sure. over somebody else. And... Instead, just look at the positive, which is there are so many. Fine, we trans women are hurting, but historically, girls and women have have been hurting for thousands of years. So mm -hmm. our priorities urgent and needful, but they need to overcome shame over vulvas specifically. And the, pretty large the too. Pussy Hats, too, I was reading on their website, which is PussyHatProject.com. You guys can learn more about these women, Jaina and Krista, who, who started it. They said that a lot of it was in response to literal pussy grabbing. Yes. So it wasn't that penises were being grabbed, regardless of the gender of the person. There was something specific about the pussy. And well, there is yeah, shame somebody said that. that you can just yeah. go around grabbing women by the pussy. That's where that started. Right, right. Yeah, so the the... The hate and the inequality was with that person, right? The person who was doing that. Exactly. Sure. And we're yeah. talking about Me Too and we're talking mm -hmm. about rise up and resist and all these things. And meanwhile, the head of our country is a misogynist and sexual assault um, proponent. Who's bragged about it and should be in prison. Yes. That's very disheartening. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's something that I think we need, we need to address head on. And so it pains me when even though it's good to speak about trans issues and, and let's build platforms for that, it pains me when it derails a really important message. Let's stay mm -hmm. on point is what I'm trying to say. I love that message. It's it's very inclusive. It's saying inclusivity is, is all of us. Exactly. So I'm going to ask you for one last tip related to self-acceptance and overcoming shame for Peter and for anyone else who might be listening. But first, I would love to hear a little bit about mygenderjournal.com. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you brought it up. Uh, so last year I worked on a really big conference called the Empowered Trans Woman Summit. 
And I, I, and that's online. You can find it at empoweredtranswoman.com. But I dreamed up to launch a website concurrently. And that website well, is, is going to be a tracking, you know, like you can track your period, you can track your pregnancy, uh, you can track your weight loss at the gym. There, there's apps and tools for that. I'm building something like that for transition, something that tracks your hormone intake daily. Did you switch hormones? Everything is documented. How did it, how did it affect your libido? How did it affect your state of mind? Uh, I, for example, I at one point recently hit um, a pretty dark depression, and then I was wondering to what extent does it correlate in the fact that I was um, upping my dosage of T blockers or something like that. And so, because of the fact that I didn't track it careful enough, I don't have a record. But this would give you a record. Plus, it would also build community. Cassie, that's brilliant. <laughs> Thank that you. That is so awesome. What? So it's called My Gender Journal. Is that the name of MyGenderJournal.com. Okay. And the thing is, last year I couldn't launch it because I ran out of money. Um, uh. I kind of built it, but it's very buggy. So I'm launching a Kickstarter campaign, and I'm literally going home and launching it. This Kickstarter <gasps> so when this campaign. comes out, it'll be brand new, and people can find it at that website. I'll also share the link in the follow-up Exactly, yeah. MyGenderJournal.com will actually uh, give you a a sign-up box that all you need to do is put your email address. You will land on the Kickstarter and give me all your money because I need to build this thing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) ma'am. So for anyone who is struggling, I think we all struggle with shame at some point. It's not something we can just sort of master getting away from. But for anyone who's really in a place of wanting to fully embrace themselves, whether they're going through gender um, affirming transitions or they are concerned about a a particular body part, what would you offer that person? One of the most important realizations of my life, and uh, this is long after I already knew I was bisexual and long after I already knew I was queer, but it was an earth-shattering realization for me. And at the time, I I hadn't even started transitioning, but... I am not a broken heterosexual. I just happen not to be a heterosexual. So I came up with a really stupid kind of a a saying, which is a pineapple is not a bad banana. (laughs) (laughs) I totally love that. A pineapple is an entirely different fruit. So just find out what kind of fruit you are. And we're all fruits. (laughs) In In this model, we're all fruits. Find out what kind of a thing and person you are and be that. Stop trying to be like somebody you saw on TV or somebody that you saw in high school or somebody that your parents told you is acceptable. Just find out your best version of yourself and be that and be that without shame. Mm. You are such a gift. Knowing that this is who I am. That is so freeing. A pineapple is not a broken banana. Yes. <laughs> Woo! Thank you all so much for listening. If you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes if you haven't and leave us a review while you're there. You can also follow us on Spotify and head to augustmclaughlin.com to find out about events, find follow-up blogs with links to Cassie's work and more, augustmclaughlin.com. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. <laughs>